Welcome to Public Health Out Loud, public health for the public. My name is Dr. Philip Chan from the Rhode Island Department of Health. With the start of summer right here around the corner, today's topic is particularly timely. We're talking about skin cancer, all the important facts you need to know and how you can best protect yourself. Our guest today is an expert on skin cancer. He's the president of Brown Dermatology, a practice that has grown into one of the largest comprehensive uh, dermatology services in Rhode Island. He's also a highly respected academic. He serves as chair of the Department of Dermatology at the Warren Alpert Medical School at Brown University and professor of dermatology and epidemiology at Brown. So I wanna to welcome today, Dr. Brar Qureshi. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Philip, pleasure to be here. So first off, tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from and what you do. You know, I've, I've been in Rhode Island about nine years. I guess I'm still a wash ashore in the area from Massachusetts, but uh, really delighted to be here. Uh, love taking care of patients in the state. Uh, it's been a tremendous experience here growing uh, our practices at Rhode Island Hospital and of course in the community all the way down to South County. And I think this is really a timely discussion today discussing the use of sunblocks and, and protective uh, sunscreen as summer's upon us. And we're thrilled to have you. I can honestly say that you're one of the top dermatologists, one of the top skin experts in the state. So let's start with skin cancer. I mean, we've heard about skin cancer. How much of a problem is it? Is it increasing? How much should we be concerned? Well, you know, it's always scary to think about skin cancer in terms of numbers. If you look at total cancers across the country, uh, we probably see about maybe three and a half million cancers, uh, total cancers all put together, breast cancer, colon cancer, prostate cancer, et cetera. Well, all skin cancers make up about a third of all cancer in the country. So it's a pretty, it's a pretty big problem to address. Interestingly enough, for our states, south of, I would say, the East Greenwich area, uh, maybe towards the, the beaches and Narragansett, et cetera, the rate of skin cancer is even higher. It could be the, the age of people living there, could be they get more sun exposure. Uh, but we certainly are seeing a fair number, number of skin cancers in the state. They typically fall into three large categories, melanoma being the most life-threatening one, of course. And we see sort of less life-threatening ones, uh, basal cell carcinoma and squamous cell carcinoma. Um, so it really, it, it is a big problem. And talk to us, I think the one that a lot of us have heard the most about, certainly in the lay media, et cetera, is, is melanoma. Is that the most dangerous one? And for people that get melanoma, is it, is it a death sentence? Is it curable? Talk to us a little bit about that. Well, melanoma is probably the most life-threatening skin cancer of, of the three we see. It's actually easy to catch early because typically it's a changing mole or a, a spot that's changing color. Uh, so we, we call it spotting the spot, right? If, you, if you're looking at your skin, especially if you go to the beach, you're getting undressed, you're, you're ready to jump in the water, you know, your spouse, a colleague, friend can look at your back, back of your legs, back of the arms. You can look at yourself in the mirror, identify spots that might be changing color, shape, or size. Uh, it's worth seeing a dermatologist because uh, it's so easy to treat when it's early. Of course, if the tumor gets advanced, it can spread, and that's when we get into issues with mortality. So easy to find, easy to treat. You don't need any special equipment. You don't need a, for example, you don't need an endoscopy, for example, like in colon cancer. It's just a matter of looking, and the more you look, uh, the more you find, and certainly, you know, care is around the corner. So melanoma, I love how you described it as a changing mole, and I guess that's something that we've been taught over time, even in primary care here, a change in a mole, color, shape, size, et cetera. Uh, how about the other two types, a squamous cell and basal cell? Are those, can those be as dangerous as melanoma? And what do they look like? What are the warning signs there? 
Well, squamous cell carcinoma, so squamous cell is probably somewhere in between, uh, less threatening than melanoma, but can be as well, especially if, if a patient's immune suppressed, if they had a, an organ transplant, for example, uh, like a liver transplant or a lung transplant or a kidney transplant. But in general, the general population, squamous cell is less life-threatening, does need treatment. We have new treatments now. Some of the treatments actually include even topical uh, creams that are chemo creams. Often this tumor does need surgery as well. But again, the way you identify these lesions is typically they'll grow suddenly. Uh, it's typically a red lesion, um, could be pink in color, uh, may be painful or may not be, but something that grows and doesn't go away is, is the, the way to watch for basal cell and squamous cell. It might look like an acne type lesion, it might look like a, a bug bite, for example. People think, hey, you know, maybe I got bitten by a mosquito, but it lasts for more than three or four weeks, maybe even five or six weeks. That's when you start thinking, hey, it's still there. Let's go, let's go have it looked at. Yeah, let's talk about the time frame. I think, you know, similar to most people, I mean, I got dots all over my body, you know, and I think to your point, you know, one thing that I often counsel patients is exactly what you said, something that gets bigger, that doesn't go away. I think we see so many things over time as physicians that, you know, that just go away. And those are the things you don't really worry about. So if someone notices something on them, whether it be a changing mold or something that's growing and not going away, is this is this an emergency? Does this person have time to sort of call and get a skin check? What is that? How worried should people do, be if they see something? And what's the time frame that they should be thinking? Yeah, I think it's a very good question. Uh, we usually recommend that our, our patients first approach the primary care physician um, or the nurse practitioner they're seeing or the physician assistant they're seeing in the primary care clinic and point out a lesion that they've noticed to be changing. Typically, we recommend anything that's changed and has not gone away more than four weeks. So about a month, month to maybe six weeks should be looked at. And if the primary care physician is suspicious, they certainly get in touch with uh, the local dermatologist and, and get them seen. But the, the message is, it's, it's much easier to do a biopsy and take care of a smaller lesion than when it becomes advanced. And so I think two things to remember are, you know, something that's changing and something that changes and then doesn't resolve or doesn't go away on its own. Now, patients always ask the question, how do we know it's changing? I have so many spots on me, uh, doctor. How do I know something is changing? Well, it turns out you have to look at your skin um, at least maybe once a month for about six to eight months to begin to get to know your mole. So maybe there should be a new campaign of getting to know your spots. And it takes a few months to get to know them. How do you get to know them? Well, you look. And the more you look, the more you realize what's there and what's not uh, there or what's changing. And something that's new, that changes, then you can spot it much more easily. You can also ask a family member or a friend to look in areas that are harder to look at, such as your back. Or, or if you're good at using a mirror, you can certainly try using a mirror. But it's really, it's a matter of looking at things and, and watching things over time. I often tell patients, if the fifth of the month is your birthday, the fifth of every month is you just take a look at your moles. I like that. Getting to know your spots. I love it. Hopefully someone at the health department is taking notes here. You know, you mentioned the first check-in should be with a, a primary care provider, physician, nurse practitioner. You know, as the skin experts, when do you get a dermatologist involved? And do you know, should the average person go see a dermatologist for a skin check or what group of people should really consider seeing a dermatologist for a more sort of in-depth skin assessment? Again, great question. So the, the way we recommend rolling this out is if you have a family history of melanoma, particularly, or a family history of squamous cell carcinoma or basal cell carcinoma in a first degree relative, could be a mother, father, you know, grandparent, um, could be, uh, you know, a sibling, a brother, sister, 
it, it's probably a good idea to have a skin exam, you know, done once and then maybe follow up with your primary care doctor. The dermatologist will tell you if you need follow up further from there. If you don't, you can certainly follow up with your primary care doctor from there on. So if they tell you, look, you, you're someone who definitely has enough interesting molds, or interesting spots, we want to see you more often, then you can certainly follow up with a dermatologist. But family history is probably the most important um, harbinger of what needs follow-up in, in general. If you're someone who works outdoor, you know, let's say you're in construction, you, uh, you work on a farm, you um, a commercial fisher uh, man or fisher woman in this case, um, then in those cases where you're getting sun exposure as part of your work, it's worth being uh, careful, of course, we'll talk about that in a moment, but it's really important to be screened more often because you're at a higher risk of getting skin cancer. And let's talk about melanoma for a second. So you mentioned, uh, you know, catching it early helps versus catching it late. If you catch melanoma early, what is the prognosis and how does that compare if you catch it late? I think just to drive home that point about why early matters. Well, melanoma is considered curable. I mean, you basically have, have caught the lesion early and you're cured of the lesion and there's no need for advanced surgery, chemotherapy, or radiation at all. If the melanoma advances and spreads to other organs, you know, within the skin or other organs, uh, you know, in the body, then of course, we work with our medical oncologist, our surgical oncologist, and a radiation therapist to treat those patients. But you're absolutely right. Catching the lesion early is much better because you've prevented further disease and you've cured the lesion. And curing just means cutting out just the, the spot that you're worried about and then you're done? Correct. So, you know, it basically surgery is done to remove that area and clear uh, skin margin around the area, and then you can start cure. Now, having had one melanoma certainly puts you at risk of getting more, and that's when you go into follow-up with dermatology. And those are the patients, that, again, we would want to follow in dermatology clinic on a longer-term basis. And how can the average person protect themselves? What behaviors can help reduce the risk if people are concerned about skin cancer, which frankly, we should all be, especially living in Rhode Island. And as you mentioned, you know, we got amazing beaches and people should, should go to the beach, but how can people protect themselves? What, what can they do to help reduce the risk? Well, Philip, you know, it's such a difficult question to answer because we have such short summers, right? It's a very short season and everyone wants to be out there uh, enjoying the, uh, the beautiful weather and of course the beautiful environment in Rhode Island. And I'd say basically a little bit of common sense goes a long way, right? So everybody knows that when, you, when the sun is up uh, in the middle of the day, that's when it's strongest. So that's when you can certainly be outdoors. You just want to be careful, you know, wear the right kind of uh, headgear, maybe a hat, you know, certainly keep your shirt on, you know, obviously in midday if you can. And then we'll talk about sunblock in a moment as well. Sunscreen or sunblock is a very important part of being outdoors in the summertime. But morning sun and more afternoon or evening sun is probably okay because you know, it's not, it doesn't have that, that intensity. And so it's not gonna cause much in terms of sunburn. So the big message is midday sun is critical. And typically the times between about 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. or even, even tighter to so 11 a.m. and when 1 p.m. are really critical times when even if you're at the beach, you know, seek shade. And what I mean by that is bring an umbrella along. You, know, you can get, you can get uh, any kind of shade structure to, uh, with you. So you can be out on the water, you can be out on the beach, but if you're sitting down and relaxing in between a swim, you know, seek shade. 
I love it. It was reminding me that I often wear a hat. I wear a wide brimmed hat and uh, my kids often make fun of me, but I guess it is what it is. Let's talk about sunscreen for a second. You know, there's a lot of myths out there about sunscreen and I assume that you generally encourage sunscreen. And is there a specific SPF that people should be worried? I see, you know, everything ranging from five to like a hundred. Is there a point in which it no matter, it, it no longer matters? Or how do you think about sunscreen in use and what are some of the, the common mistakes that people make with, with sunscreen? The FDA has done an incredible job in the last couple of years, really changing sunscreen labeling completely. It took them about a few years to get it all done, uh, really to make it helpful for all of us and, and consumers and our patients alike to be able to buy the right product off the shelf so the marketing is done right. So simply stated, I prefer the term sunblock, not sunscreen. But you know, sunscreen as it is, is essentially comes in you know, maybe a couple of different forms. You can buy a cream or a lotion, and you can buy uh, a spray. In general, we prefer the cream or lotion because it spreads more evenly and, and protects your skin you know, uh, in, a, in a better fashion than spray. It's important to remember that sunscreen or sunblock only protects skin that's direct, that it's directly applied to. If you don't apply to a patch of skin, you're not protected. And also important to remember that sunless tanning, so spray tans, don't protect you from sun damage. So basically those tans that are sprayed on uh, may give you color, may give you a color that you desire, but they don't protect you from the, the harmful rays of the sun. Mm. So sunblock is really meant to protect you from ultraviolet radiation. And there are two types of radiation comes to the Earth's surface. There's ultraviolet A and B. So most sunscreen is really geared to protect you against ultraviolet B radiation but we really do worry about UVA, which comes through. And so how does one go to the shelf and buy a bottle or tube of sunscreen? I mean, it's such a difficult task. You have, you have so many brands and so many types. So simple things, especially for moms and dads looking to protect their children. I, I start with children because parents always buy the best sunscreen for their children. And I tell them, please use the same sunscreen on yourself, you know, nice and easy. So what do you buy for your kids or your grandkids? Well, the, the SPF is the first thing people look at. So the SPF, the new regulations the FDA has recommended, doesn't need to be more than 50 to 60. In fact, most labels are SPF 50. So a 30 to 50 number of SPF is perfectly good to buy. Second thing to look at is the active ingredients on the back of the bottle or, or two. The active ingredients have a number of chemical names or other names written on them. A good one to remember, two good ones to remember are zinc oxide and titanium dioxide. So two tips on buying sunscreens. Look at the SPF number. 30 to 50 is good. You don't need anything above 50. In fact, the new regulations uh, prohibit use of numbers above 50 or 60 anyway. Second tip, look at the active ingredient and prefer sunscreens that have only zinc oxide or titanium dioxide written under the active ingredients. And you touched on this about the spray. You know, I was reading that the spray may, you know, inhaling some of those chemicals may be bad for you. Not sure if you agree, but certainly I recommend people apply the spray sunblocks uh, in a well-ventilated place as well. But any differences when you think about kids versus adults and, and how long, like, so I put on some, you know, SPF 50, you know, sunblock. Am I, am I good for the day? How long, how often do I need to reapply, et cetera? Well, you know, it's interesting. People usually apply sunscreen. There's a the belief out that if you apply sunscreen, you have to wait X number of minutes or maybe half an hour before you go out into the sun. So the answer is the sunscreen actually is active from the moment you, from the second you apply it to your skin and the clock is ticking. And so the way that the SPF number works is you apply it to, to a patch of skin, that skin is protected, let's say with an SPF 50, but then 
in two hours, that sunscreen will be gone. It won't be as effective anymore. So you have to reapply every couple of hours. If you're in water, all bets are off. So that brings me to my third important point about sunscreen labeling. The first was SPF, the number 30 to 50. The second was the ingredients, zinc or titanium. The third is, is the sunscreen water resistant or not? And, and actually the new FDA regulations uh, prohibit the use of waterproof labeling because they were misleading to the consumer. So most sunscreens are water resistant and they'll tell you the number of minutes they're resistant for. A good number to remember is 60 minutes or 80 minutes. So almost no sunscreens are even good for 120 minutes. So it's a reminder, if you're out in the sun, you apply a number 30 sunscreen, which is zinc and titanium on your skin or your child's skin, and they're out splashing around in the water. Well, when they come back to the shade, to the umbrella, reapply sunscreen when they go back out because you want to reapply and, and get enough sunscreen on. You brought up a really good point about spray sunscreens to remind me that not only is it, is it not good to inhale some of those chemicals, it turns out that the spray sunscreens sometimes have chemicals that are not good for the environment. So zinc and titanium, along with being really good ultraviolet A and ultraviolet B blockers, actually are really okay for the environment, for, for the reefs, for the, for the wildlife in, in, in the salt water, in the ocean. So not only are you protecting yourself, you're also protecting the environment by using non-chemical blocks with zinc and titanium. Very interesting. Uh, I did not know that. Thank you. You also touched on one thing that I wanted to go back to, and that was just tanning. So when we think about tanning, not necessarily spray tanning, but just, I guess, all the different types of tanning, what are the dangers there? Are, is there a risk of skin cancer with tanning in general? Are there any other risks besides skin cancer with tanning? You know, it, it's interesting. If you naturally tan, and I'm, I'm going to be careful how I say this, if you, if you get a natural tan when you go into the sun and you, you get darker, that's actually good because you have your normal, it's, it's your best way of blocking the sun and you, you have less risk of skin cancer. If you don't get a natural tan, or, you know, you turn pink or you burn easily, then you have to be more careful. And tanning beds in general um, are considered harmful because that ultraviolet radiation in tanning beds is ultraviolet A. It provokes more tanning and also increases risk of skin cancer. So in general, um, in fact, there's legislation in, in Rhode Island now, um, worked on by actually our group that requires underage teenagers to actually require parental permission before they get into a tanning bed. So tanning beds in general, we don't, we don't promote because they're considered more risky and more harmful, but you can certainly get a lot of you know, similar radiation from the sun. And I said, midday is a critical time. You mentioned one other important thing, which is the use of a, a broad brim hat. And I just wanna make sure I don't forget to mention hats. So baseball caps don't do much to protect you. If you're actually wearing a brim hat, about a two and a half or three inch brim away from your head all around, it can actually give you an, uh, an SPF 50, a number 50 protection impact on your face, even without sunscreen. Now, all bets are off if you're on a non-reflective surface. So if you're, if you're on turf and you're a golfer and you wear a big hat, you're good. But if you're on, let's say, water and you're a sailor or you're swimming or you're fishing and there's a reflective surface around you, then you do need sunscreen on the face as well. So hats are really important. We see a lot of skin cancer in the head and neck. Wearing a three-inch brim hat all around is really helpful, even if people mock you or make fun of you. I'll make sure to pass that along to my kids. I'm not sure they'll they'll care, but uh, <laughs> thank you for that. In general, you know, obviously there's a lot of people that are outside all the time, certainly in the sun for work, for play, et cetera. Is there a safe amount of sun? I mean, is, you know, is it safe to just be outside regardless of sunscreen for eight hours a day? Is there, what do you tell people in terms of just sun exposure in general? A common misconception, uh, Philip, is that there's, a need to be out there getting sun midday at noon to get vitamin D. 
for your skin. So uh, very important, you know, the skin is an interesting organ, right? It, it generates or manufactures vitamin D. That's very important for the health of our bones in particular. And as we get older, right, our bones need that vitamin D. And so you can certainly eat vitamin D by mouth, but the vitamin D made by our skin is so good and so efficient. Why not partake in it? Well, you don't need to get sun midday, you know, laying on the sun at noon to get vitamin D. You just need about 15 minutes of sun exposure on your arms and legs, maybe your torso, if you like, or in the morning or in, in the afternoon. So before 9 a.m., after 4 p.m., uh, if you're going for a walk, you know, maybe uh, don't apply sunscreen. You know, if you're going for a run in the morning, going for a bike ride before, let's say, 9 a.m., you don't need to apply sunscreen necessarily unless you burn easily and you can get enough vitamin D in about 15 to uh, 30 minutes. What I'm saying is you do not need to, to be out there sunning yourself midday when the sun's rays are the most harmful to get vitamin D. And so there's some, some benefits of sun exposure. There are other benefits we actually aren't aware of, of heliotherapy. And so, you know, we certainly do know that there's a lot of talk about people being happier when the weather is nicer, and, and that might relate to basically sun exposure. But again, we don't want to be, you know, we don't be too purist either, but we want to strike that balance where we're enjoying being outdoors, yet being careful, especially midday. And I certainly feel better when I'm outside in general, and certainly when the sunshine is on my face. But I think you kind of hit the key point there, which is balance. Uh, as with most things in life, we just, we have to be balanced and moderate sun exposure. There's a free program uh, for skin cancer screening here in Rhode Island called Skin Check, and it's been in place for 10 years and is collaboration with the Department of Health. Can you tell us a little bit more about how the program works and how our listeners can participate? Yes. So this is actually uh, led by one of our physicians, Dr. John Kaoka, and they do a lot of screenings on beaches. It's a great place to be because people are there, you know, they're, they're out in the sun and it's a great time. You, know, you can be right there. Uh, we do the screenings, typically in tents or trailers. And the idea is to pass the word out, you know, not only should you be careful in the sun, you can also start looking if you have a family member, you know, who's swimming, comes back out of the water, you can look at that back, you know, if you, you might spot a spot that you can, you can pay attention to. So they are free and free uh, sessions, you can go in if you see a trailer or a tent, and you know, go in, you know, ask to be examined. And certainly, you know, you'll have a dermatologist take a look at you, and get some advice on what to what to look for, what kind of sunscreen to use. So it's a really nice public health uh, opportunity. And of course, we do it at beaches, a great place to be in the summertime. Makes sense. Well, Dr. Qureshi, thank you again so much for joining us. Our time is winding down here. I want to give you a chance for any final thoughts for our listeners, any advice about skin cancer, or frankly, anything related to the skin. Yeah, just a reminder that you know, as you, as you begin to enjoy the days of summer, we want you out there. We want you to be enjoying the sun, enjoying the good weather. Just remember the midday sun, you know, seek protection from the sun with shade or a hat. Look at your family members, look at the skin, look at your own skin, and just get to know your spots uh, because you might be able to save someone's life. Dr. Qureshi, thank you so much again for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for taking your time. And for our listeners who are interested in learning more about the Skin Check program, you can find out more information at www.prcri.org. In closing, I want to thank Erica Collins, our executive producer, Carol Stone, our technical director, and of course, our guest, Dr. Qureshi, for sharing his expertise and his valuable, potentially life-saving information today. I'm Dr. Philip Chan, signing off on behalf of the Rhode Island Department of Health. Thank you all and be well.